What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Darren Heitner, the founder of Heitner Legal and an expert on all things name, image, and likeness. In this conversation, we discuss how NIL rules have changed, which athletes are making the most money, the schools paying millions of dollars in academic bonuses, how brands are determining the success of these deals, and more. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. Okay, Darren, I have a lot to talk to you about today. I want to get into NIL and everything that's gone on over the last few months. I think people are super interested in this topic. But before we dig into that and all the questions, uh, if you could just give a few kind of a little bit of background on yourself and your experience so people know your perspective. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me and congratulations with what you've done with this podcast. My background is I'm born and raised in South Florida, which is an area you've become accustomed with in in the recent past. Went to University of Florida for undergrad and for law school, and I actually currently teach there now a sports law class. And we cover everything from amateurism to sports agency issues, defamation, et cetera. 
And outside of my teaching, I practice law. I've been practicing for 11 years, have my own law firm, Hydra Legal, which has been in existence for a little bit over seven years. And I've also written a few books that have been published by the American Bar Association called How to Play the Game, What Every Sports Attorney Needs to Know. Okay, great. So that's an amazing kind of overview. The thing I would add to that, right, and one of the reasons why I'm interested in having this conversation is you have experience in all of the different fields, right? You were a sports agent at one point. Uh, You've written books, obviously, like you mentioned. You contribute for Forbes, CNBC, all these different websites. You own your own agency uh, website that's focused on the sports agency business. You're super in the know when it comes to uh, these discussions and kind of what's going on in the space. So what I want to talk about today is NIL. Obviously, there's been a bunch of changes over the last six to eight months. Maybe just walk people through who aren't familiar with what exactly happened, why it happened, when it happened, and kind of what the end result was. I'd love to. And I do fashion myself as an NIL advocate. It stands for name, image, and likeness. Let's start there. But really, it's a lot more than just an individual's name, image, and likeness. It's everything surrounding a person's publicity rights. And for the longest time, in fact, as long as I can remember, College athletes were sort of this excluded class of individuals who did not have the same rights of publicity as literally everybody else, which is to commercialize one's name, image, likeness, signature, other identifications in order to gain commercially. And that could be through licensing those rights to third parties or even engaging in endorsement opportunities. It also importantly includes the ability to prevent third parties from utilizing one's name, image, and likeness without consent in a commercial manner. And so these are important rights that were taken away from college athletes. And and, and basically, they did not have the same rights as other individuals on their own college campuses. So let's go back two years to 2019. The state of California absolutely took the lead on this particular issue. And that state decided to pass legislation that for the first time would trump the NCAA's bylaws that had prohibited this type of activity. And when it passed and when it was signed into law by Governor Newsom in the state of California in the tail end of 2019, what was interesting about that legislation is that it did not contemplate actually changing the law in the state until four years later, 2023. And at the same time, or or soon thereafter, the state of Colorado actually became the second state to consider passing similar type of legislation. And then in September 2019, the representative for my district in the state of Florida in Broward County, Chip Lamarca, decided or, or considered whether this was an issue that he wanted to take up. And every legislator in the state House and state Senate has a certain number of pieces of legislation that they can support in any given year. But he liked this concept that athletes should be given rights and consider the fact that California tends to trend very liberal Democrat, whereas the state of Florida, at least in the recent past, has trended conservative and Republican. California thought from a liberal standpoint that this was an issue worth backing. Well, Chip Lamarck, a Republican, also believed that this was an issue worth backing. But here we thought this is a market that should not be no one should be excluded from this type of free market. And so in September 2019, Chip Lamarca came to me with his legislative aid and asked whether I'd be interested in helping with the creation and promotion of legislation in the state of Florida on this particular issue. And I jumped at the opportunity. And immediately we looked at different decision makers. We talked to them, tried to understand what they thought was most important, and then did our own diligence to determine, are there parts of that California legislation that we could make better? 
And one of the very first things was we tried to understand whether there was any justification and foundation for waiting a full four years before actually making a law like this effective. And we resolved on the answer being no. And in fact, when the piece of legislation in Florida was first proposed in the very beginning of 2020, when the legislative session began, we initially had an effective date of July 1, 2020. Ultimately, it went through the House, it went to the Senate. The Senate pushed back, said, we need more room uh, in order you know, before we actually make this go live. And it ended up being pushed back to July 1, 2021, before it was ultimately passed by the House and Senate, went to Governor Ron DeSantis, which, who signed it, this piece of legislation in June 2020, giving the NCAA, giving other states a full year advance warning that this was coming. And in fact, we saw many other states then follow the lead of Florida and propose legislation with July 1, 2021 effective dates, which ultimately led on June 30th, 2021 to the NCA for the first time shedding its bylaw, opening up the doors for athletes across the country to, for the first time, benefit uh, from their names, images, and likenesses. And there's a lot of war stories within that whole process. It didn't necessarily end uh, with the signing of the legislation by Governor Ron DeSantis. I will say, looking back, it's rather interesting when we think about timing, because when the legislation was first proposed and put on the floor in the state of Florida in, in January 2020, that was two months prior to the coronavirus pandemic you know, spreading across the country and sweeping our nation. Um, I wonder whether it was a good thing that we actually pushed back the effective date to 2021, because I think a lot of athletes could have actually benefited from an earlier effective date, but I'm still proud of what we accomplished. Yeah. So I appreciate that overview. I think you did a great job of taking decades probably of not only war stories, but uh, hard work by a bunch of people like yourself and others and condensing it in two to three minutes there. So that's great. Let's look at the last few months, right? So July 1, everything goes into effect. Uh, we're now five months removed from that. What is your 30,000 foot view of just kind of how it's gone so far? I honestly could not have fathomed that it would have gone better. Certainly there have been bumps in the road and I think that was absolutely expected. The biggest issues probably concern athletes who are just jumping at every single opportunity that comes their way selling themselves short, basically choosing quantity over quality and denigrating their own brands. I think another issue perhaps is that many of them don't have the assistance of counsel and don't realize some of the rights that they may be giving away to third parties, um, extensive rights that may last for many years or perhaps in perpetuity. Uh, another issue oftentimes revolves around intellectual property in itself and having an appreciation over what types of images can be used with or without consent, what's a royalty-free image, and what is an image or video that actually needs to be paid for with uh, concerning a license, and then using third parties' trademarks, their names, their brands, their logos, with or without consent. Those are really important issues. But overall, it's, it's gone very, very well. I think going into it, I always was of the position that it was going to take time for the biggest brands to really jump in on the in the deep end. And very recently, we even saw a company like Gatorade, which I've had the opportunity of working with on the legal side, at least with regard to NIL, finally make a splash uh, with a female basketball player at UConn. 
And I think we're going to start seeing more and more of these big brands finally feel comfortable to jump in. I mean, realize there's a lot of red tape at these brands and ultimately it was going to take a lot of time for these brands to feel comfortable. And they also wanted to use others as test cases, see what works and what doesn't. Uh, I know that there are detractors who say you know, a lot of tough lessons were learned by brands who decided to associate with very prominent players leading up to the 2021 college football season who ultimately were injured or benched, et cetera. I know Spencer Rattler is sort of exhibit A with all that, but understand the value in name recognition and association that a lot of these brands had in the infancy of those deals being crafted. And then even when people were questioning whether the brand should have gotten involved in the first place, those brands are being mentioned over and over again. It's awareness. And there's very few brands. In fact, I can't think of any who have actually lost out in this entire process from start to now. And we're not even a full six months in. Um, we've seen millions of dollars spent and there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars spent in the future. I think this is truly a billion dollar business uh, annually. Gotcha. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to kind of the specific deals and the specific players uh, in a little bit. I want to touch on that. But before we do that, I think it's important to note that there's obviously levels to this, right? There's the uh, premier kind of elite college football players that are getting larger deals. There's D2 athletes, there's D3 athletes, and those kind of cascade, cascade down to lower level deals, maybe camps, whatever. But they still have the ability to go monetize that. So let's talk about the first level uh, initially, which is those, those top tier, high level elite college football players, the names that everyone would recognize and know. How are these deals working from an agent perspective? Are most of them hiring agents? Are some of them doing it on their own? Uh, just walk me through kind of your experience there. You know, there are, I think, roughly, if not more than 400,000 NCAA college athletes at any given time. Um, and obviously, we know it's transitory. They're not there for very long. Uh, the very, very few of them are signing agents to for representation purposes, at least at this point in time. And I do think that will remain true probably forever. Um, there's only so much capacity that those agents and agencies have. They have to be picky and choosy themselves. Um, remember, th these are organizations that have existed perhaps for decades um, that have a limited amount of resources and manpower and all of a sudden have this thrust upon them. And many of them are not even uh, are not taking a commission or taking a very small commission on the deals that they're able to procure for their athlete clients. But certainly when you're talking about you know, the blue chip athletes, the quarterbacks at the major institutions in the SEC, ACC, et cetera, yes, those individuals more often than not will be signing with agents uh, for marketing purposes only, at least for now, um, and oftentimes on an exclusive basis. And as I mentioned before, the agents may be charging little to nothing or perhaps as high as 20% on some of the deals that they're able to procure and negotiate. Um, we've seen, I can give you an example, Dan Everett, Everett Sports Marketing, uh, a group that I work very closely with. He works with Sam Howell, quarterback at UNC, JT Daniels at UGA, and also the Cavender Twins at Fresno State, uh, the female basketball players, whom I've had an opportunity to work with as well. And you found a lot of agents who are very hyper-focused on marketing uh, positioning themselves very well and, and for this opportunity. And then the traditional agencies that represent athletes and team contracts have also decided that this is something that's worthwhile for them. Would it be fair to say that 
uh, some of these top tier agents and their businesses see this as an opportunity to whether they they obviously can't uh, represent them in other stuff right now when it comes to professional sports, it's strictly on a marketing basis. But would it be fair to say that they're seeing this as an avenue to get to these athletes a year or two earlier than they would have had initially? 100%. And it's something that I talk about with agents all the time. It's a blessing. And also it's, it's a miserable uh, circumstance for many agents as well. Because if you think about it, Many of the athletes that these agents may be signing now a few years earlier are likely athletes that they would have been working with anyway when the athletes decide and determine to go professional. And so now there may be lofty expectations for these agents who really don't have much of a marketing background. And when they get involved with these players, the players have the expectations that the agents will be delivering certain deals, a number of deals or a type of deals to them. And if the agents fail, well, there goes an opportunity that the agent probably would have had to represent the player in his professional capacity. And now the player says, you know what? This was a good test period. I'm going to go a different direction. Um, but agents have always had the capacity to communicate with players while they're in college, as long as they're licensed as athlete agents in the states in which athletes uh, compete. Now they can actually sign them. And uh, yeah, you better believe that many of the athletes who sign with agents strictly in a marketing capacity, because that's all that they can do while they're in college, will stay with those agents if and when they turn pro. Yeah. So that, that, that brings up an interesting point. I'm glad you said that, because the way I think about this, right, is that uh, from an agent's perspective, these relationships, at least initially from a strictly NIL kind of standpoint, are very uh, low upside, kind of high risk, right? And, and from a monetary perspective, I mean solely, right? So they don't have the ability to earn a bunch, a bunch of money. Even the best players in the country, their fee relative to what they're earning is not a substantial amount, usually on the bottom line in their business. But if you're not careful and you mess it up or you use resources and all these things, the risk is substantial where you can lose that ability to sign that player later on. Maybe they don't like the work that you do, et cetera. But also, uh, I'm curious to see in your opinion, if you think, this will require most of these agents and these businesses to build out NIL related services, right? So the top agents in the world, are they all going to have to go now develop a new kind of standard for NIL practices because of that ability to go sign these players? Essentially what I'm asking, right, is like, does this place a bunch more pressure and competition on agents relative to what it did in the past? Absolutely. It absolutely adds a layer of pressure. And I think to your question, uh, Agents will need to rethink their organizations and absolutely add individuals within their ranks if they want to survive uh, and excel at what they do. Uh, this is an area that's not going away. I think the attention that's paid to the NIL industry and the attention that's paid by the players is not going anywhere. It's only going to be amplified over time. And so agents will be very wise and agencies to uh, you know, appropriate resources to this specifically, uh, because it is going to be a huge source of business for them. And if they don't pay attention to it, it could actually uh, lead to a, a, a negative reaction or, or negative consequences for their organizations. But it's, it's difficult because for anyone who has an appreciation for the sports agency business, it's a low margin business. If you consider the fact that NFL agents, individuals who are certified to practice with the NFL Players Association, their fees are capped at 3% on the contracts that they negotiate with teams. 
And many agents, especially for the blue chip players, are going to drastically reduce those fees and charge less than 3%, perhaps 2% or 1%. In the NBA, uh, through the National Basketball Players Association, the Players Union, those fees are capped at 4%, so only 1% higher. Um, And even in sports where there may not be a cap, in order to remain competitive, agents are constantly competing against each other and a race to the bottom. And so what that means is that revenues are oftentimes capped. Uh, Expenses are already very high in terms of what agents are paying for training, for stipends, for housing, sometimes marketing guarantees, loans. Uh, There's a lot of expenses in the realm of travel, uh, et cetera. And so uh, it it could make the... uh, the, the business decision, I guess, of getting into this industry even harder for those who, who are contemplating becoming agents just because now there's an extra layer of cost, most likely. Okay. And what do you think is the number one benefit for a college athlete right now when it comes to NIL deals? Is it specifically social media following? Is it their performance on the field or the court? Is it the school that they attend? Just let me know your thoughts there. You know, every brand is looking at different attributes as to what they want from an athlete. I was just talking with one of these service providers yesterday, and and there's a a wide array of new businesses that have been created to facilitate deals for athletes and buying between athletes and brands. And one of these service providers said, the brands that we're working with don't really care what sport the athletes play, whether they're female or male, all they're looking at are those social media metrics, the number of followers, the engagement, and whatever other data is provided from platforms like Instagram, TikTok, et cetera. Whereas there are many brands who are looking at location, whether it's a regional or local connection. They're looking at specific types of players, whether they be football players or basketball players, whether they be female or male. So it really varies. I will say more often than not, you know, one thing that comes up time and time again are those social media metrics. It's very rare that there's not a component of the deal that revolves around social media deliverables, whether it be TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I will say Instagram and TikTok seem to prevail over the others. Gotcha. Okay. So I want to just touch on the numbers real quick, because uh, as we discussed that we're a few months into this now, so there are some data points that we can point to, to see how it's going. Right. So influencer, uh, one of the platforms that registers a lot of these deals came out with some data a few months ago, open doors has done the same thing. And generally there's, there's thousands of deals being done right on both platforms. Uh, and the numbers range, but influencer I have here and their average transaction so far is $1,300. And the median transaction is $63, right? So there's obviously a wide gap between the average and the median. A lot of people uh, were poking fun at that online and saying, hey, look, it's super top heavy, like we suppose. There's some of these deals that people are doing for little to no money at all. What are your general thoughts on that, on seeing those numbers? Well, those people are right in a sense. What, what a platform like Open Doors does is it opens the door for athletes to, to enter into many different types of deals. And that's a good thing. Like there should be opportunity for athletes. And ultimately it's up to every single athlete to decide whether or not to enter into those deals, which oftentimes will be for little to no monetary compensation. And that's really why we see the median number being so low is in the, at least in the infancy of NIL, we saw a lot of brands come out and say, we want to capture as many athletes as possible. We don't care what sport they play or really even how many followers they have. We'll offer, let's say, somewhere around $20 per post. 
And every single athlete in the ecosystem that may be part of this platform who wants to, to sign up for it will pay out as long as they deliver on the obligation. And really, that's why you see the median being so low, because there's just a plethora of those types of deals out there. And again, many of them being entered into in the very infancy of NIL. I think that will hopefully at least start to be carved out of this whole process. And you'll see more genuine, authentic related types of deals in place. But the means higher because there are so many athletes who are actually getting five, six figure deals. And based on those deals that are being put in place, you see a skewing of the mean as a, uh, in comparison to the median. Um, it goes back to what I said before. It, it's all about whether you're emphasizing quality or quantity. And at least with the athletes that I'm working with, I'm just trying to stress the value of one's brand, not denigrating it by entering in, and into every single opportunity that comes their way and making sure that they appreciate, let's say somebody else does decide to use their name, image, or likeness without their consent, that if they have to then litigate against that person, what's the barometer typically going to be in terms of damages and relief? Well, it will probably be what that athlete was able to curate for him or herself with his or her own deals. So don't sell yourself short. Gotcha. So do you think anyone will make a million dollars this year? And if so, how many people? You know, I, I, I do think that there will. I know a, a big soundbite early on in NIL was Nick Saban saying that his quarterback, Bryce Young, had already earned more than a million dollars. I think that soundbite was then uh, amended to something along the lines of there were more, there was over a million dollars in offers to him. But it would not surprise me at all that somebody like Bryce Young, especially if he's in contention for the Heisman, is able to capture that amount of money. Um, I'm working with the Cavender twins at Fresno State. I absolutely believe, based on the deals that we've already entered into and the offers that are on the table and the expectation of what's to come, uh, that over the first calendar year, starting July 1, 2021, going to July 1, 2022, that they will absolutely earn more than a million dollars together. So um, just based on my experience with them, I mean, I'm working with Anthony Richardson, a quarterback at University of Florida. Um, he wasn't even technically the starter this season, but it's his team in the future, hopefully. And we've already entered into deals in the six-figure range. So I think you'll see quite a few athletes earn over a million dollars during the first calendar year. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. So what is the most unique deal, I guess, that you've seen? <laughs> There's so many. I, I think one that really sticks out to me, um, well, well, first I'll say that the quote unquote team deals are always very interesting where, and, and I was fortunate to work with American top team uh, down here in South Florida with on the first quote unquote team deal where there was an offer to every University of Miami football player of $500 per month for a calendar year in exchange for social media deliverables. So I think that certainly stands out because it set a trend and we've seen so many other companies actually even offer that $500 per month to athletes. Um, outside of that deal, I'd say probably the deal for BYU football players with Built Bar, um, it came out of the gate and said, you know, we're going to offer money to walk-ons, people who really need the money more than anyone else who don't have the scholarships to rely upon to cover at least a portion of their cost of attendance. And I think that was really innovative and, and that certainly stands out to me. So one of the things I think people were concerned about or thought would at least happen when all this kicked off 
uh, was the it would enable boosters basically to funnel money to recruits or players at schools to get them to commit to schools or attend schools or play for schools, right? Have you seen any of that? And if you have or have not, why do you think it's going that way? Well, look, the NCAA did not reveal many guardrails, uh, even though it was expected for quite some time leading up to July 1, 2021, that the NCAA would be very restrictive. It carved those restrictions away in the wake of a very important Supreme Court decision in Alston v. NCAA, which was an adverse unanimous ruling uh, to the NCAA and caused a lot of caution and concern for that body. And so the very limited rules include no pay for play. So there can't be bonuses uh, based on the athletes uh, performing in a certain, at a certain level. Uh, there can't be, uh, there has to be quid pro quo. So there has to be something that the athletes are providing in exchange for the consideration. And as you alluded to, uh, there cannot be payments in exchange for enrolling at or staying at a university. And, um, you know, we have not, believe me, we would all know it. Because there would be a whistle being blown and a red flag being raised. We have not seen any tangible evidence of any booster or otherwise offering compensation to somebody who is not yet enrolled, only contingent on that athlete attending a university. So that's absolutely a positive. Have we seen boosters get involved in NIL? Absolutely. And interestingly, if you look at the three pages of questions and answers that was published by the NCAA and remains in effect, it outright says there is no prohibition on boosters making payments to college athletes. Again, as long as there's quid pro quo, it's not pay for play and it's not contingent on the athletes attending the university. The NCAA goes a step further and tells athletes, you also have to look at your respective state laws, if there are laws in place in your state and your specific school NIL policies, if they've been published. But outside of that, there's no restriction on boosters being involved in NIL. And in fact, I've personally been involved in creating something called the Gator Collective, which is an organization of fans and boosters related to the University of Florida who have raised money largely through subscriptions, either monthly or annually, and now I think there are over a thousand subscribers, all of that money ultimately going to current athletes at the University of Florida and in exchange for deliverables that those athletes are providing. So you still have that quid pro quo. Um, but again, I, I think the first instance that we see any sort of nefarious dealings, uh, we'll know about it. And we just haven't heard anything yet. Yeah. So completely understand right i think there's a there's a line being drawn between things that are against the rules and things that may be kind of on the other side but close to the line right and i think when people think about these deals uh what is stopping i guess is the question what is stopping a coach from saying hey this is the general guideline or the general number that if you attend my school this is what the guy made last year right or this is what uh we expect a player of your caliber to make if this is how good we are and so is that legal and do you think that's being done well, from a legal standpoint, what I always advise to anyone who asks a question like that is, number one, look at your state's NIL law if one exists and make a determination as to whether or not it's in violation of the law. You also have to look at the NCA's NIL policy um, and then your school-specific NIL policy. We have to believe, and in fact, I'm aware that coaches are recruiting actively 
and citing to the deals that current athletes are entering into with brands um, and the money that they're making from camps and clinics and from autograph sessions and from NFTs, which has been a very hot area for NIL activity. Uh, but can those coaches go one step further and actually promise that those opportunities will be there for those athletes? Absolutely not. Can they reference the deals that have been made? Yes. And they're certainly doing it. Gotcha. So I think there's been a few interesting topics that I want to specifically touch on, uh, specific deals in regards to that. So one of them was Ole Miss. Uh, it came out a week or two ago. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but essentially they set up a fund using football revenue uh, to pay out players based on academic achievement, student athletes based on academic achievement. Maybe just talk through, I know there was uh, a specific a specific rule, I believe, that made this possible. So maybe talk through that rule and then just exactly how the Ole Miss structure works. Sure. So this goes back to the recent Supreme Court decision 9-0 in Alston v. NCAA, uh, where the court essentially said the NCAA is a cartel. It has colluded to prevent athletes from certain rights. But the caveat in that decision is that it was limited to academic related benefits and essentially said that the NCAA cannot prevent schools from providing those benefits in the future. Um, Justice Kavanaugh is concurring opinion, went a step further, questioned whether there should be any restrictions whatsoever, talked about the fact that maybe there will be collective bargaining in the future, and perhaps athletes are even should even be entitled to a, a piece of the pie that the universities and conferences are earning off the backs of those athletes. But again, that was only a concurring opinion. The actual opinion for the court dealt specifically with academic-related benefits. And that's why you see a program like Ole Miss, and I'm sure we'll see many others, decide that they're willing to provide X amount of dollars to each athlete specifically related to academic-related benefits. Um, there is other litigation that's pending in courts across the country, both concerning that specific subject and even the restriction on NIL opportunities prior to July 1, 2021. Um, as I'm sure anyone listening knows, litigation tends to take a long time, um, unless, of course, there's an early settlement. Um, but there's your answer as to why Ole Miss is able to do what it's doing. So this is obviously a competitive advantage in my mind, right? When you look at uh, their ability to go to a student athlete and say, hey, if you're able to make these or meet these qualifications, you get X amount of money. Do you think that essentially every other school now will be in a race to do something similar? Right. If all this can do it, you better believe that every school in a Power Five conference will be able to mimic that. I, I think where there's going to be certainly disparities between, you know, sort of the haves and the have-nots when you compare the Power Fives to the schools that don't have the same types of budgets and don't receive the same level of revenues from their football teams and sometimes their basketball teams, it may make it a bit more difficult for those schools to make the same promises that Ole Miss and likely other power five schools will be making. And that's where I think you'll see uh, a differing of, of opportunity. Gotcha. So the other topic I want to touch on is Quinn Ears, right? So he was uh, a high school football player in Texas, very good one, top recruit, was committed to Ohio State, ended up leaving high school a year early and committing and going to Ohio State as an early enrollee a year previously than he would have initially. So that was of note, one, because he said it was due to NIL and he wanted to go monetize his brand and do all this stuff. Uh, I believe it wasn't possible for him to do that in Texas at the time when he did that. 
so that's one topic I want to touch on, right? Like how do the state laws impact that? And then secondly is he agreed to a deal initially that was over a million dollars, right? Or a million and a half dollars or whatever it ended up being. He had a few deals. He had a car. He had all this stuff. And I think people were laughing because he was technically the fourth string quarterback, right? He couldn't, uh, wasn't playing, wasn't doing any of this stuff. And he had millions of dollars of deals. So maybe talk a little bit about kind of how the state laws are and if they've changed at all. And then secondly, like, is this going to be a thing where the top recruits just say, Hey, if my state doesn't comply, I'm either going to move, right? Because I think, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Mikey Williams, the basketball player, moved states also because he wanted to go and, and monetize on some of this stuff in high school. So he moved to a state that allowed him to do that. But there's other people I imagine that would want to do this and would either go to college early, move states, or just sit right where they are. So maybe just touch a little bit on the the, the specific state rules. Well, we just talked about competitive advantage and, and competition between schools that can provide academic-related benefits and perhaps cannot. Well, what about competitive advantages and disadvantages buying between states, as you allude to? Texas what being one of less than a handful of states that decided to enact an overly restrictive or, or, or pass an overly restrictive NIL law. And Texas's state law goes as far as to say that high school athletes or what they call prospective college athletes, prospective student athletes, cannot enter into NIL deals with brands prior to enrollment at a, at a university, at a college. And so that absolutely played an influence on Quinn Ewers deciding that he was going to get out of the state of Texas and enroll at Ohio State University and do so early so that the doors were open to him, so that he didn't have to wait. And it's surprising to me that a state like Texas would decide to be overtly restrictive when it didn't have to be. I mean, since all these states got involved in passing, considering NIL legislation. We've even started to see uh, high school athletic associations across the country reconsider their own bylaws. You know, when, when all these states passed college athlete NIL laws, I think many of them, including my state of Florida, committed an oversight on whether there'd be any effect on high school athletes. And we only looked at college athletes, and I think that was wrong of us. A uh, state like California has always allowed uh, prospective college athletes to involve themselves in these types of opportunities. And through my own diligence, I found out that's because there's so many child actors in that state. Well, since passing this legislation, we've seen high school athletic associations in New York, in Ohio, in New Jersey reconsider these types of restrictions, but my own state of Florida, our state, it's the Florida High School Athletic Association says that high school athletes cannot earn money off of their fame. And that presents a big problem. So you mentioned Mikey Williams. Well, Mikey Williams is also a unique example because he's not even participating within a high school athletic association. My understanding is he's, he's participating in a private association where these types of bylaws that I just alluded to would not even control. And thus, he's allowed to earn money at an earlier age based on his fame. And my personal position is there should be no restrictions whatsoever. It's the same argument that was made when we were talking about college athletes. If a talented individual in the field of music or art or literally anything, if it's an influencer and that person can make money, well, so, so should a college athlete be able to make money. And that's absolutely true at a younger age as well. If a high school individual who happens to be talented and coveted by brands can make money, well, 
a high school athlete should have that same opportunity. Love it. So I got one more for you and then I'll let you go. NIL recently went into effect in July. It's been a hot topic for years and continues to be now. But I think this past week reminded people just how big college football really is on the top level, right? So you had Mel Tucker, Brian Kelly, and Lincoln Riley all within the last few weeks signed $100 million deals or more, right? 95 to 100 to 110 million. So my question would be, do you think at some point relatively quickly or later on, people are going to start talking about a revenue sharing side of it for the, the top college athletes? It's already happening on the on the national level. We've seen you know, Cory Booker, Representative Blumenthal, and others propose in their legislation. And by the way, there's been almost ten different pieces of legislation proposed at the national level to streamline and make it uniform what the NIL laws are across the country. Yet the federal government, perhaps unsurprisingly, has managed to take a nonpartisan or perhaps bipartisan issue and make it quite controversial. And that's because there's so many ancillary issues that have been added to the strict NIL concern. And one of those items, as you just mentioned, would be revenue sharing. Um, It's been discussed quite a bit, uh, but no action has been taken. I think it would have to be taken at the national level. I can guarantee you the NCA will not voluntarily change its bylaws. It never has in the past. It didn't with NIL. It could have absolutely ameliorated all of these issues, Uh, but it never has. And so I think we're still far ways away from revenue sharing. Are there arguments, normative arguments that can and should be made to support it? Absolutely. I mean, you have programs that are making an exorbitant amount of money. They'll all tell you they're losing money, but then you see these contracts that are being signed by these college coaches I mean, they're, they're profitable ventures by and large. Not every Well, uh, the one thing I would say there too is that there is no reason for them, there's no incentive for them to make a profit, right? Or report a profit in most cases. Of course not. Not, not from a tax perspective, yeah. that's for sure. Um, but, but could I see it at some point in time? The answer is yes. There are questions that then do arise with regard to whether they're classified as independent contractors or employees. And then what does that do to scholarships, grants, and aid? Can they just be terminated from their employment as opposed to losing scholarships? I mean, it's not necessarily when you dig into it, something that's absolutely advantageous for every single college athlete. But by and large, I think it would be. Uh, I, I do think we're probably at a minimum five years, but probably a decade away from something like that. Yeah, I, I, I joked with you on Twitter the other day that hopefully it doesn't take a hundred years, right? And, and the one thing that I would that I always think about, uh, and I thought about this relatively recently, so maybe my my thought process is slightly flawed, but just from a context standpoint, if you look at the NFL, Patrick Mahomes is the highest paid player; he makes forty five million dollars a year. Bill Belichick is the highest paid coach; he makes fifteen, eighteen million a year. Different reports, right? So three times as much Patrick Mahomes makes. LeBron James, Steph Curry, all these guys, they make $45 million a year. Same thing with the NBA. The, the, they make four to five times more than the highest paid coach. In college football, the, the top highest paid player, say it ends up being Bryce Young this year, he might make 10% of what Nick Saban makes, right? So uh, when, when you think about it from kind of who adds the most value and relative to their, to their payment, it certainly makes an argument for some of these players being paid much more than they currently are. Which is zero. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, they, they, they absolutely, uh, you know, they, they should be entitled to something. They are, they are what brings people to the stands. They are what causes people to tune in on TV. It's what creates the discussion on Twitter and other forms of social media. 
I mean, sure, we're all going to make jokes about Brian Kelly's Southern accent, but outside of that, you know, it, it's it's the the players. The players are what cause the commotion that create the entertainment and what drives us all to be so interested in the sports. And, you know, I'll add, so many people thought NIL would cause chaos and be the end of college sports and that it would be, it would detract from our attention. No, it's enhanced our attention. It's caused us to actually learn more about these players, be fascinated by their stories, learn about their charitable interests. So many of these players are donating money to great philanthropic causes and not only just taking in money, but sharing the money with their teams. I've seen quarterbacks share money with their offensive linemen. I mean, it's, it's really caused people to unify. Uh, we haven't seen the disagreements and arguments in the locker rooms that so many people predicted. So I guess that goes back to your very first question. Uh, you know, what's my overall impression of NIL? It, it's been an absolute net positive. Gotcha. All right, Darren, I'll let you go. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, where can I send people to find more on NIL and your thoughts around it? Well, like you, I, I try to be as active on social media as possible. So it's my name at Darren Heitner on Twitter. I mean, if you find me on Instagram, you're going to see a lot of food and dog pictures. So you probably just want to follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. My, uh, my Instagram is flooded with dog pictures now too. So I understand that. All right, man, I appreciate this uh, and we'll have to do it again soon. Thank you.